Welcome to Making Waves, a show about sound art, produced for WGXC Wave Farm by New Adventures in Sound Art. Today's show features Kelly Ruth from Edmonton. She has adapted her skills as a weaver, visual artist, and musician to make live sound art performances on the digital platform of Second Life. The loom is used both as a visual centerpiece in her performances, but also as a musical instrument that is amplified with contact mics and modified with live electronics. In this interview, she talks about bringing her interests together, particularly during the pandemic, and creating a hybrid performance practice that can be experienced both in person and in the 3D virtual environment of Second Life. In the latter part of the show, we'll listen to a performance recorded by Kelly Ruth in March 2022. You can access it from her YouTube page should you want to look at the visual worlds that she's made in Second Life. But first, uh, here is my interview with Kelly Ruth. Do you seeing yourself as a visual artist or a musician or both, or, or really are are those two things one and the same thing when you, uh, and they just all fit under artist? How do you how do you define yourself? I love that question. Um, I definitely pursued both paths independent of each other for the first uh, part of my life. So I was a visual artist, but I also played music. Uh, and I was always unsure whether I wanted to be a visual artist or a musician. So I kept doing both. And eventually in my practice, music became sound sculpture, uh, which a lot, I think a lot of musicians, they're in rock bands, and then eventually they start uh, thinking of it more as uh, sculptural. So so that that was when the two, I think, came together because I was also doing, um, I was moving from paint into sculpture with large textile pieces. I was weaving and, and felting and making installation work that was sculptural. But I was also including sound in those sculptures. And I was using um, Arduinos and triggering bodies in the space and, and incorporating those circuits into the foundations of the cloth that I was making, these big woven structures. So the circuits were actually woven into the fiber. Um, so, so I would say that at this point, I'm equally both. And, and they're, they're one in the same. And they're integrated um, most definitely together. How far back is that work that you did with the incorporating circuits into the textile work? Uh, Well, it was around 2014 that I put contact mics on my loom. And I think that's the first time that I started exploring sound sculpturally. So it was shortly after that point that I started learning Arduinos through Video Pool Media Art Center in Winnipeg and um, integrating them into the actual woven cloth that I was weaving on that same weaving loom. I was a weaver first uh, before I put contact microphones on the loom. Um, Yeah, so not too long that I've been doing it integrated. And when you put contact mics on the loom, uh, contact mics pick up the kind of internal... uh, wooden structure I guess you could say this is sound transmitted through the wood of the loom um what did you discover when you heard that and well immediately when I started weaving I recognized that it was a rhythmic that it was a rhythmic tool so I could I could imagine rhythms in there 
um, and then having gone to a lot of sound art shows, I knew about contact microphones. So this was my first exploration of contact microphones. Um, the, it's really exciting with a loom because there are metal parts. It's mostly wooden, but there's uh, a piece called the reed. There's levers and things that have squeaky sounds. So even the contact microphone on the on the wood, you're you're getting all that sort of richness of the the reverberation in the in the wood, but you get these pings and 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 metal things coming through there as well. And sometimes the contact microphone, I'll put it directly on the metal so that when I'm dragging other tools on that it creates a, a very it's a rich pitchy sound with a lot of depth a lot of tonal depth as well so uh yeah so the sounds of the the loom i'm just lo looking over my loom here the sounds of the loom are um really gorgeous in and of themselves they're very textured but then creating a soundscape through loops and effects and trying to create a live improvised composition, that's what I find really interesting with those sounds is creating this sort of living, breathing, emotive uh, object. And I guess the way of interacting with the loom is different. The way you handle it would be different in this in this context, I imagine. Maybe you could explain somehow how, you know, um, what happens when you start touching different parts of the loom when it's mm -hmm. amped up with the mic the contact mics well it's certainly different than the the act of weaving itself like a lot of people will say oh wow you can weave a cloth while creating a performance but um they're they're two different acts they're two different use of the brain i, I really could not do both simultaneously well so uh when i'm creating music with the loom i I'm really interested in, in, in capturing those rhythmic layers and building on the, you know, responding to one sound and building on and moving from, from sort of movement to movement. And it's, it's really just, it's just me <laughs> touching this loom uh, and, and manipulating the loom, listening to it and responding to the sounds that it's creating in, in the loops. Um, I've got several loops going, so they're not, they're not synced. Uh, I also find it very interesting when the the rhythms start to go out of sync and come back into sync. So the sort of long, the long form of it is super interesting to me. And uh, thinking of like a whole whole room full of machines that are working together and how those sounds sort of come in and out of uh, syncopation and and um, yeah. I don't know if that exactly answers your question. <laughs> so has it become, so in a way it's sort of through electronics takes us to uh, uh, some uh, 19th or 18th century uh, uh, sound ambience or? <laughs> I hope so. You know, some of the, the responses I get from people is, um, I think with sound art in general, you know, not having lyrics, there's no narrative or story or, people often say, oh, it, it made me think of this imagined history, or it made me think of this imagined future. So they, they, it really does transport people throughout history. And I recognize that quite early in presenting with it, that that it's a, I mean, it's a tool that has history embedded in it. <laughs> and, that, and that comes across in the performance rather than a textile artwork that you make where, where the, the evidence of the loom is missing, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's a special piece of equipment. 
and I guess in more recent years, you've moved into uh, working with Second Life, and and that in and that in itself, you're integrating um, kind of animated visual environment with your past performance technique with the loom and electronics. And maybe if you can expand a bit about that, is that also elevating the kind of integration of your visual art and music background? Yeah, it's allowing, well, you know, working with, um, first of all, first of all, uh, 3D virtual worlds, social avatar based, I find absolutely fascinating. And all of the research I'm doing around this technology, um, I expect that we will have it in the mainstream in the same way we eventually all started carrying phones in our pockets. So we had computers in our pockets. Um, I do expect that we'll eventually be in. In, the way we'll use internet is not like these magazine pages that we go to and that we'll be moving through them in a 3D way. So I just see this as like an exploration of an early internet that we haven't fully adopted yet. So that's super interesting. And my work has always been an exploration of humans' relationship with technology, starting from weaving and um, natural dyes and, and how humans were using the land and and building machines back then so this is just a trajectory of that um in that though it's exciting for me because i've been learning 3d modeling so last couple of years i've learned blender and i'm essentially building my paintings in 3d form so i haven't painted for a long time but now it's like i'm painting again so i'm creating these 3d worlds and uh, i have an avatar representation of myself with an exact replica of my big weaving loom um, that was made for me in, by a friend that I met in the virtual world. So uh, I play <laughs> an exact replica of my big weaving loom in worlds, in like the paintings that I've created in there. And now I've also been adding sound sculpture in there. So um, objects that are moving it through this 3D space that have sound scripts in them, they, you know, if you stand in one spot, you're getting a soundtrack that is mixed based on the scripting that I've instructed these objects to move around the space. So you could move around the space and keep mixing the sound differently, or you could let the sound mix around you um, while walking through my painting. <laughs> so yeah, I just find it thrilling. Mm -hmm. um, and so is it, um, is it something that's for... Um... Is it an experience that's always there in in Second Life, or is it something that happens in um, on, on special occasions? Um, well, I the way the way it works is you 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 buy land and you pay like like the equivalent of property taxes. So it's like I'm renting a studio. My studio is virtual, so I've built I've built and built and built there. I have several layers and several installations. You know, you have a limited amount of, um, it's like bandwidth essentially. So, you know, once I've maxed out, once I've uh, used up all of my bandwidth on that land, I have to kind of delete some things and rebuild. But this installation I've been plugging away at for, well, since February. And, you know, I have no, I have no desire to delete it. I just want to keep building it and expanding it and, and then and then creating a new one as well. So I can I kind of do that um, at my own whim. There's nobody dictating to me what I what I can do or can't do on that land. And how would you describe that? What's taking place in that land? I mean, you mentioned there's some sculptural entities or some sound. 
Um, is there a, a kind of a, a real world analogy that uh, one could use for, for entering that virtual world? Sure. Well, it, it sort of starts with, it's like a, it's like a floating island in the sky. So it starts with a city that I built and I keep trying to encourage artist friends to join me in the virtual world. So I make apartments for them and I get them to come in with an avatar and I try and encourage them to decorate their apartment so they feel like they're staying. Right. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so I've got my city for that. <laughs> And I have a couple of uh, spaces, like a like a this electro grotto cave that I built, that is a a cool little speakeasy club, um, and and I'll I will DJ in there, and friends will DJ in there. It's just a way for us to share music. Like I'll actually DJ live mix techno, which I love doing as a side thing, um, and other friends will DJ. And then I've got a festival tent, and a few friends decided they wanted to have a like a kind of like a farmer's market themed festival so we have been building uh and these are friends that i've met from all over the world and there'll be about 12 to 15 performers uh in in this festival on november 18th that we're doing on my land and i've built cyber gardens and greenhouses with all the you know cyber plants and we've got the festival tent and the main tent and the market garden and people will be selling their art and There'll be DJs and also live ambient, um, like improvised artists performing throughout the day with a schedule. So we have a mini festival. I mean, it's just, it's just, a, it's kind of endless. So then below that, there's an elevator by my art gallery that you can take down to the, 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 the second level. And on that second level is the installation that I've been building for NASA. So it's, it's as wide, like the land footprint is as big as the city above it. So it's just like a stacked city that's floating in the sky with this installation below it. And then there's another level where my next installation will be. So provided I have the bandwidth, I think once the festival's done, I can delete the festival and create more art is what I'll do. <laughs> <laughs> so so it seems like it's a like a quite an expansion of options and possibilities that um and it's a it's almost a shame that everyone went to just doing uh live shows over zoom or something like that uh um you know or or through camera you know uh, uh shots of a space or something um during the pandemic but uh why didn't second life become like why didn't that raise rise in prominence the way zoom did um i think there's a few reasons uh well, first of all, Second Life, okay, so Second Life's been around for about 20 years. It's one of the first, it's the second 3D avatar-based virtual world in existence, as far as I can tell. Um, and there's about, my last count, there's about 130 virtual worlds out there. So there's a lot of them, and there's a lot of people trying to do this. Um, well, separate second from Life, Second Life, you mean? 130 oh, yeah. other systems or anime? Yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, lots okay. of new worlds have popped up in the last five years. Uh, Second Life is, oh, and unlike like any of the worlds, actually, uh, they're very well. The ones that are the, <laughs> the ones that are most flexible and are able to be leveraged by artists because of that flexibility, like Second Life, I would say is one of the most flexible worlds out there. Is kind of coterie. So when you when you log in, it, it, you you sort of have this this like 
these folders that you have to be navigating and figuring out the system and figuring out how to sit and walk and talk. And there's, it's sort of like an endless, uh, it's not technically open source, it, you know, but it has many ways that people can add plugins essentially. So it's like 30, it's like third party, um, activated space. Second Life built this thing and said, okay, now the user's will make it happen. We built the infrastructure, we'll manage the infrastructure, but the users of it will build the world, which is what's happened for the last 20 years. So you kind of have to have this understanding that it's not like a video game that is perfectly designed and manageable and has a user interface that's easy. It's like an open source thing. If you've ever used Blender, it's a similar kind of messy but wonderful uh, opportunity to do anything you can imagine, but you have to learn it. So I think that Second Life right now is too hard for the general population. Right, Most right, virtual right. worlds so it has are a too learning hard. curve. Yeah, it has a learning curve. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, but that's uh, certainly one that artists are prepared to invest in. The learning is. The easy part is usually the money aspect that's hard. Um, is it is it expensive to um, maintain your studio in, in Second Life? Um, I have like I have plenty of land. I have what's called a quarter parcel, uh, and I have it on the mainland, so that makes it a little bit cheaper for me. Um, <laughs> no, that doesn't mean anything to anybody. Um, I pay my studio then costs me eighty dollars Canadian a month which, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, some people might say, wow, that's a lot of money to pay for a video game. But uh, I used to rent a physical studio. I used to do big installation work. I used to live in my studio because I couldn't afford a studio and a home. So $80 a month is manageable. In that sense, yeah, for, yeah, $80 a month for your imagination. Yeah. As opposed to... F- Six hundred thousand, fifteen hundred a month. Yeah, I mean it's <laughs> for your I, for your imagination. I have learned so much in this last couple of years just from having that little piece of land to do it all on. Yeah, I, it's worth it to me. I also stopped paying Netflix and stopped paying other subscriptions, and now I do. <laughs> yeah, uh, did. Now you're also doing you're doing performances, live performances, and this I've seen performances of you playing live, and then also it, it uh, cutting over to the Second Life world, and and that we're gonna do that uh, at NASA. Uh, what uh, what are uh, what are the um, uh, interesting uh, aspects of of uh, of uh, blending uh, real world performance and virtual performance? I see it as um, a way of building to the two communities. Well, for example, when I did it in Edmonton, which is my community that I live in, I had friends from my life at this show in the gallery in physical life. And then I looked out on the screens. I had three screens projected in the gallery. And I look out and I'm like, those are my friends in the virtual world. And they're all in the same room. It was a little bit (laughs) of a trip for me. Uh, so this idea of bringing the two audiences together um, is really special. So when I did that, when I did that show, the one thing I wasn't doing in that configuration was I wasn't projecting 
the real life me. I was performing with my friend Allison Belchettis, who's a saxophone player. So I was not projecting that real life performance of us back into the virtual world. And I was hearing a lot from the people in the virtual world that they would love to see that. So if, you know, so Nace is talking about doing this, it would be very exciting to project both ways. Um, uh, the, yeah, the idea of bringing the audience together, but also uh, I've been talking a lot about this artistic, um, the ceiling <laughs> blown off in this a way of of working in virtuality uh, that creatively the ceiling's blown off. You can do a lot of things that you cannot do in real life. So I'm kind of shepherding this process a little bit with audiences and artists, hopefully, that's my goal, by revealing to them in their physical world, bringing it to them so that they don't have to do the work of trying to learn a platform, uh, trying to show them people the merits of this uh, this type of performance. So that's part of my goal of doing the hybrid thing is bringing it into the world. Um, are there trappings with uh, Second Life that, um, you know, like with anything, there's always a downside? What, what would be the downside? Um, I think that, I think that for some people it can be, um, like if they're not, if it's like anything, if you drink too much, you might become an alcoholic. <laughs> if you <laughs> invest too much into a virtual world, you might abandon your real life for a virtual life. And I think that that could be a challenge in the future with, uh, with mass adoption of these things. People have to keep their head on straight. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say that's one of the, 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 the bigger things that I, I think people are afraid of, and I have seen people sort of, you, you know, you hear stories in there that, that they're, they might be investing too much of their emotional energy into such a thing. Right, right. Um, there's also this aspect, of, I mean, seeing Second Life from the outside, uh, that uh, people representing themselves in some kind of idealized way, of, you mm. know, with their avatars, that these are kind of perfect creatures. And I, I wanted to know if uh, that that issue has crossed your mind at all, or is that is that just part of the fun of it? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah, no, I think you're you're also touching on a broader question about identity in there. Um, people construct their virtual identity. Sometimes it's based on an idealized version. Of themselves or sometimes it's something that they just want to explore sometimes it's an uh, opposite gender of what they're born in and they want to explore that they're not necessarily trans but they want to explore another gender uh, i imagine people explore other race in there I, I haven't come across that specifically but they certainly explore interspecies you know you, you might have you might be a cat uh my my character is a robot i i kind of evolved into a robot so I just thinking that it's easier to live without emotions. So I became a <laughs> robot to just get it done. Um, so there's these things that, that you start to recognize about your internal being, and they they do end up expressing themselves in, in, the, in the avatar form over time, the more you get to have a relationship with yourself as an avatar. I think most people want to be attractive, like physically attractive in there. Most people look like, hotties <laughs> um, 
I mean, that must say something about people. They want to be better looking than the way they're born. They want to be more appealing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Is is uh, this uh, once you develop an avatar, do you have to stick to it, or can you just uh, you know tomorrow be a completely? Could you be you know a robot one day and a cat the other? You can totally do that. It's just a matter of putting on a different outfit. And, and it can transform your whole body. That whole outfit could be a transformation of your whole body. And it costs, I mean, everything costs money. So basically, so I'm saying anything's possible. Anything's possible. You either learn how to do it yourself or you buy it from somebody who made it. And there is a marketplace, kind of like Etsy. So if I wanted to buy a cat avatar, I could pay, oh, it would probably be like, it might even be $10 Canadian to buy the cat avatar that I can switch outfits into. So, you know, an average pair of shoes is probably like a dollar Canadian. I have a lot of shoes. Right. <laughs> but right, I also right. get paid. But you can make your own shoes and sell those on the market. And I, I do. I make, I yeah. make mm-hmm. plants. I have like a garden center and I sell them on the market. But I also get tips as a performer. So when I DJ and perform, there's a, a tipping culture. So it, it kind of keeps this economy going. So people pay me when I DJ and then I go buy shoes. <laughs> right, right. Okay. <laughs> That's just like a regular gig. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and what are the numbers like when you get people attending a show on Second Life? Is it like similar to the live audience like a you know same kind of size audience or is it larger or smaller or well when you're talking experimental music it's similar so i, I would still say small. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i mean you can get depending it's like the the land i was talking about this bandwidth thing so the bigger the land the more avatars you can get the biggest land would be a full parcel. I have a quarter parcel. So I can have a maximum of 40 people on my land before things start kind of breaking. Um, I've also done shows where they're on land where you can have 100 avatars. So that, first of all, is a limitation. And then the second limitation is, yeah, um, get garnering an art on audience. So, I mean, when I play, I... I can easily bring out 35 to 40 people, you know, if I've done a little bit of promo and, and um, invited people directly. And it's very much relationship building, you know, even more so than the real world relationship building is, is, is key. You know, people want to be, um, they want to know you. So, I, you know, it doesn't make sense to just show up and be like, hey, I'm a performer. You should come see me because I perform. I have a friendship with people and they want to be a part of this narrative that I'm doing and they are included in it and they are my friends. So that's, it's very, it's very relational. So it's as much um, hanging out or being with you as it is seeing you perform. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's over years now. So I've been active in there for about three four years so some of these people have been my friends for that whole time and you know this festival I mentioned everybody the whole community is contributing you know one person is building the the greenhouses and one person's building the festival tent interior then there's all the performers and there's other people bringing art to the marketplace and it's a whole community event which is 
again, very relational and empowering and creativity, you know. And and, and these people are all from all around the world. They're not just from uh, North America necessarily. Or... Yeah, no, they are literally from all around the world. And then the audience will come and they'll literally be from all over the world. And is that being a factor in terms of time zones and trying to coordinate things? Is that uh, complicated? Yeah. Yeah, so my I hang out mostly in North American time, you know, like I have my job that I do during the day and then I go on in the evenings. Uh, that's generally my hours. So I'm meeting other people that are doing the same. Um, sometimes that doesn't involve um, Australians that are that are kind of spending their early day there. Um, I don't meet a lot of Europeans in that time zone. Um, but on the weekends, the Europeans will often have their shows at noon or or, or, or one o'clock my time, and I can go and, and start to get to know some of them. Sometimes I've done really late night DJing because I just get into it and I'm, it's like six hours later and four in the morning and the Europeans are coming for breakfast. So there's sometimes <laughs> an overlap. They come for techno for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> They're crazy. <laughs> well, it's great. You don't have to walk out your door to, get, to go, so you, you just uh, turn it on Yeah. <laughs> It's fun. <laughs> I was seeing some of your videos, uh, some of the animations. I don't know if they were from For Second Life, but they something you have a kind of almost narrative or filmic like quality. Mm. Is, is that something that to that we would expect uh, coming up? Uh, right. So you're talking about machinima. Uh, I have done some machinima that had loose narrative. Um, the world that I've created, I think you're probably thinking of pixelated oscillators machinima that I did. And it's sort of a dark, um, the robot is thinking about their time on the edge of uh, things after a crisis and wondering how the future. Uh, I would say that this is not dissimilar. It's a different installation for sure. Like it's a different visual, but it still has that kind of um, mood to it. Um, it's very organic. It's a it's a it's a a landscape world that I've created, but I'm also incorporating um, a little bit of Plato uh, and um, thoughts about the three fates and the the threads that that uh, are our lives essentially. But uh, collectively, as a as a as a as a society as well. So is this. How is this uh, expressed, this aspect? I have three uh, models that I'm making, or I've made two out of three. Um, I will finish the third this week. <laughs> uh, of the three fates themselves. So they are, they are, they are sort of a central piece. Um, and sort of abstractly, that narrative of the thread moves through the installation. It's a big installation with several spaces that you can walk into and out of. And then um, it's it's a futuristic world. So there's there's sort of um, nods to the question of whether organic life is preservable or not. Um, there are these drones that are flying around that are creating drone sounds. <laughs> so uh, the drone drones. Um, so that's sort of creating that sonic landscape. And it's a little bit disturbing, um, this, this drone landscape, because it's mechanical and you've got all this organic around. So this sort of the question of 
you know, organic, uh, organic life? Is it sustainable? And then I have um, another sort of um, narrative. It's an abstract narrative of, of humans that are sort of, they're marching off. They're, they're kind of drone like themselves in their posture and their, their, their movement through the space. So, so the question is, where are they going you know what is their what is their role in this situation? So, it's it's a, it's a few ideas together, um, very much the threads of what I've been creating uh, throughout my journey with this work, um, with artwork in general. <laughs> uh, yeah, the fragility of human life, the fragility of um, of organic life in this technological madness that we are living in. Mm-hmm cheery stuff so in a sense the the context of experiencing the performance is like a kind of theater in the sense that it's uh it has other implications beyond just the music for instance i guess that you're hearing yeah yeah and i try and light everything too in a very theatrical way so i've designed the lighting in the space i've designed the the lighting of the atmosphere of the world but also all of the lighting of the little you know, um, they're like little maquettes. So there's lighting all over the space. And uh, the the idea of threads and weaving is all over the space uh, integrated. And, and the creatures, you know, you can click on some of the things. Um, it might not be evident at first, but if your, your mouse will hover over an object and it shows that you can click on it. So if you click on it, then a sound file can be launched. So there's like little Easter eggs throughout as well that that sort of help with that overall narrative. There's, a, there's the drone soundtrack, which is unnerving. And then if you go through and try and uh, discover what's in there, you'll start to get those Easter eggs.
You were just listening to a performance by Kelly Ruth from Edmonton, featuring her Loom and Electronics that can be uh, experienced in the online 3D environment of Second Life. Both NASA and WGXC are nonprofit organizations that rely on contributions from listeners. To keep adventurous and experimental sounds transmitting in your community, we urge you to become a monthly supporter of WGXC at wgxc.org slash donate. Making Waves returns one month from now. Thanks for listening.